Welcome to Energy in 30. We'll use the next 30 minutes to explore how utilities in the industry are reacting to forces that are shaping new offerings for customers in order to meet decarbonization goals. If you're a utility manager, consultant, technology provider, or just curious about energy, we hope to push your thinking about the changes that are happening in the energy industry with me, Joan Collins. And me, David Meisegeier. It's a power packed podcast today, so David and I have decided to skip our what are we up to's and get right to what our two guests are up to by welcoming Jigger Shaw, who is the director of the loan programs office at the US Department of Energy and Patty Cook, senior vice president of market development, clean energy solutions at ICF to discuss profound pathways that are emerging to activate a clean energy economy. Jigger is a strong and innovative voice in the energy industry so he probably doesn't need much of an introduction, but I'd love that he spent most of his career bringing climate solutions to scale. This includes founding Sun Edison, which pioneered pay-as-you-save solar financing, serving as the first CEO of the Carbon War Room, which was founded by none other than Sir Richard Branson, and he co-founded and was president at Generate Capital, where they innovated the use of low-cost infrastructure as a service financing. And now, as Joan said, he's the director of the loan programs office at DOE. I mean, wow, such an amazing career. Really is. And we also have Patty Cook on, who leads product and market development activities for ICS Clean Energy Solutions, designing innovative customer programs that support electrification, resiliency, and flexible load management, all things that we cover on this podcast. And among many of the extraordinary contributions she's made over the span of her 25-year career, she has helped keep the lights on in Brazil, supported the development of renewable energy in California, and develop solutions to leverage financing of the new clean energy technologies. So with that, welcome Jigger and Patty. Thanks for having us. Thank you, nice to be here. We are just so excited to have you on and it's it's just fantastic. And there are so many different directions we could go today. Like Jigger, I'd love to ask you what the funniest interaction you had working with the Sir Richard Branson. <laughs> and also I would just, really enjoy hearing if there was any you know situations where you've had bizarre stories of of you know different innovations and ideas that have come to you that actually have panned out i just think that would be fascinating to hear but our format is to keep things in the here and now (laughs) Um, (laughs) so i so maybe maybe we'll have to try that again sometime um, but Jigger, given what I've heard you state in, in other discussions and um, in the industry, one of the things that you, you said that's really stood out to me is that change has to be structural. And in your current role at the LPO, I think it's, it's just um, kind of on the, on the top of our minds, and we're curious to hear from you what you're currently working on. Yeah, thank you so much. You know, it's uh, it's a funny thing that the industry that that I've been a part of, and of course you guys um, have been big leaders in for a long time, is one that I think is often accused of not moving very fast, right, and being very slow to change. But I think when you think about how quickly we really have moved, um, it's quite shocking, right? I mean, when you think about 
you know, 90% of everything that was added to the grid in the 90s was natural gas. Today, 90% of everything that's added to the grid is clean electrons, right? And so when you think about just how much everything has changed in 20 years, it's amazing. But, I, you know, I think that part of what, what I um, have endeavored uh, to do for a long time is really understand how capital markets work, right? And how uh, does uh, the electric utility make decisions on what it invests in? And how does the private sector, particularly independent power producers, make their decisions? And, you know, and how does uh, credit groups, you know, view credit risk? And, you know, and all of that has been shaped through, you know, some of the uh, the journey I've taken from, you know, when you think about solar in 2003, when I first started uh, Sun Edison, um, it really was not viewed as low risk or an investable asset class. And today you have over a trillion dollars of capital that's been raised just to invest in the Sun Edison model. And so when you think about how that happens and what the structural underpinnings are, um, it sort of looks random from the outside, but it's actually quite uh, specific. And a lot of what we're doing here at the Loan Programs Office is figuring out how we take that formula, which the Loan Programs Office was a part of for utility scale solar and wind, and of course, Tesla's loan for EV manufacturing, and then Nissan's loan for you know battery manufacturing, and how you actually move the next set of uh, you know, 20 sectors from hydrogen to direct air capture to virtual power plants to EV charging uh, to transmission and other areas. And how do you bring them up to the same, you know, sort of trillion dollar scale? And it's um, it's just a fascinating perch uh, with how exciting the industry is today. Yeah, and you know, Stuger, that's what really inspired me when, uh, when you reached out. Uh, I think it was maybe last year. Of course, we go back to your Generate Capital days. But I remember, you know, you challenging ICF after you joined the loan program office and, and me specifically, like, how can we sort of accelerate this transition? How can we make, you know, equitable decarbonization happen faster? How do we sort of tap, you know, other sources of funding, including the loan program office to, to make this happen faster? And I remember you said something specifically about, you know, ICF and our history. And, and as you know, in 1969, we started inner city funds which was, you know, basically started to finance minority-owned businesses. So I, I think it's great that the conversations we're having now are coming full circle. And I'm really seeing some of this structural change that you mentioned come about. Um, and I think, um, you know, if you think about the tension that's happening right now uh, in the industry, I see sort of this tension between the need to decarbonize and electrify pretty quickly. Uh, I see a need to provide greater levels of resiliency, um, you know, given the sort of extreme weather events that we're experiencing. And then I see the need to do this all way more affordably and equitably. So um, that's really quite a challenge. And I think that what you're doing with the Loan Program Office kind of puts you in the sweet spot of being able to sort of address some of those challenges. Yeah, it's been a really interesting uh, journey. You know, I think that when you think about uh, some of the things that uh, we've been through, you know, together, whether it's um, uh, the, you know, non-wireless alternatives work that BQDM represented for, you know, Con Ed. Uh, and, you know, that was a difficult process, right? Con Ed trying to figure out how to do these kinds of contracts and 
the vendors trying to figure out how to serve uh, Con Ed in a way that it was actionable and auditable and um, you know resilient. Um, but then also, I think all the changes that have happened in the state of California and them moving to you know time-based energy efficiency and not just raw energy efficiency uh, at any time of the day, and you know helping people understand what that looks like. You know, I think that that the the concepts. Uh, are ones that have been piloted for some time. But but thinking about how all of those things are fully integrated into the grid operation software still hasn't been figured out, right? I mean, I think people still prefer calling up a generation facility and saying, hey, can you turn on? I need more power, as opposed to going to somebody um, with demand flexibility or flexible loads and saying, hey, can you shed load? Um, I think that whole concept is viewed more as an emergency situation phone call than it is a day-to-day -day phone call. And so and then as you layer on for quarter 2022, which is saying that now demand uh, flexibility has to be paid at the exact same rate as uh, natural gas peaker plants, I think there's a lot of people's priors that are being questioned right now, and people are trying to figure out how to maintain the resiliency and reliability that we've come to expect for decades from our electric utility uh, industry within this new framework. Yes, absolutely. It's funny you mentioned non-wired alternatives because that has sort of become a stepping stone to thinking differently about how customer-sided resources can be used to enable the transition and to decarbonize. When you think about the cost of some of these clean energy technologies and the challenges associated with getting customer-sided assets deployed more quickly, it's really a first cost barrier that customers are dealing with. We're seeing an interest from utilities in getting more heat pump water heaters out there. There's an interest in doing more make-ready infrastructure for EV charging, and there's even an interest in make-ready for solar and batteries for resiliency. But these assets are expensive for most people. So the idea of leveraging third-party capital is becoming more in vogue as utilities realize they can't do it alone. They would really benefit from having a structured way of enabling these partnerships and the associated DER resources to achieve clean energy goals. Can you talk a little bit about how you think that third-party capital, including the capital and loan guarantees that DOE is offering, can enable this transition? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's one that I think is really uh, confusing from an architecture standpoint, right? I think that part of the reasons the utilities view everything as so expensive is because they view electrons from having to come from uh, a central place through transmission, through distribution. So everything is really one directional. The whole concept of a bi-directional uh, grid or, uh, or a grid that is transact transactive is really something that I think people have read papers on, but have a really hard time wrapping their brain around. And so I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, one is, uh, so for instance, you know, we do pay batteries to be on the grid today, right? So people will put very large battery setups in place, but they're still expected to go through the transmission grid and then the distribution grid. Um, but you can imagine that almost all electric vehicle charging stations in the country run at less than 15% of the time, hmm. right? So you could put the same big battery at the head uh, center with eight superchargers and, you know, they're averaging 50 kilowatts to 350 kilowatts of load. 
and put in a battery there and continuously charge that battery at 200 kilowatts all the time, 24 hours a day. And then when it fills up, it like, you know, people charge and they get the 350 kilowatts worth of uh, charging. And then, you know, the battery starts filling up again. And then that battery can still be used to provide a lot of the grid resources that people are willing to pay them. But because that battery is placed behind the meter and not in a central location, even though it's the exact same Tesla Megapack, um, people are saying, wait, we can't pay you for that service. We only pay people who are in the middle of nowhere that service, right? And, and so when you think about that, and then I'll give you another example on batteries. So the president has a goal of 50% of all EVs, uh, all vehicles being sold by 2030 being EVs. To do that, we need roughly 800 gigawatt hours of battery capacity that uh, manufacturing capacity here in this country. And, and that's how many batteries will be in those roughly 8 million cars, let's say, in, um, in 2030. So that's an annual number, 800 gigawatt hours of batteries, right? 125 kilowatt hours in a Ford F-150 Lightning and a 66 kilowatt hours in a Hyundai Ionic, right? Um, but when you think about what we're expecting to have on the grid cumulative, by 2030, it's only 150 gigawatt hours, cumulative, right? So, I mean, could you imagine your entire architecture is built to pay the 150 gigawatt hours, but you have no idea on what to do with 800 gigawatt hours that in one year will be added to the grid in 2030 and what the standards are by directional charging, how to pay those people, vehicle to home integration, how you might load level a neighborhood distribution circuit with those batteries. I mean, all of that, right? V1G, V2G, um, you know, and it's it's just it's a it's just a change in mindset. Yeah, it, it really is. And and you know the other thing that you know you mentioned you mentioned for 2222 and I keep thinking about you know, this whole idea of aggregation, because clearly what you just described is going to need to be coordinated and um, orchestrated, um, particularly when you think about, you know, utility scale assets being dispatched and deployed relative to, say, customer sided assets. So, you know, there's a whole orchestration that needs to happen. And a lot of that orchestration is going to have to happen in seconds, right? Not hours, <laughs> not, not through, you know, time of use rates, um, but it's going to have to happen quickly. And so there's this sort of discussion around, you know, so who is the aggregator and 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 how does that functionality actually occur? Um, you know, when FERC 2222 first came out, you know, we were talking with some of the folks who authored it and they basically said, look, you know, we don't care who the aggregator is. It could be the utility, it could be a third party. Um, so it's really all about, you know, who is best positioned to provide that value to customers and how do we do it most affordably? And I, I again, I go back to the, the idea that this idea of funding outside, using outside funding sources to, to make some of these transitions happen is gonna be really key um, to, to, to the transition. Yeah, I mean, it can go many different ways as you suggest. I mean, I think that the problem with the utilities leading the charge is that they're not sure whether they want to own those assets, right? I mean, that's the real challenge. Like, I'll give you an example. We have said for years that the way to solve the net metering problem is for the electric utilities to own all the inverters, 
right? Why wouldn't you own the inverters? Since the 1980s, we have known that inverters can provide VAR support, frequency regulation, all sorts of services, right? Remember Petra Solar was doing that with PSE&G in New Jersey. Um, HECO and HEI has done that uh, to great success in Hawaii. But the utility companies are really afraid of having to provide that service. I mean, once you get approved to rate base all the inverters, well, then clearly the Public Service Commission is going to require you to use those inverters to provide that service, yeah. right? And they're saying, well, I don't know if I want to provide that service. That's not comfortable for us. But the same thing is true with bidirectional chargers, right? I don't know why people privately own them. The utility should own all the bi-directional chargers. And everyone's like, well, but if you use rate tariffs and like, you know, we nudge people, that's not going to work. Let's be honest, right? What well, you want is for the utilities or the aggregator to just own the bi-directional chargers and shut them off when you can't like sustain it or shut them off um, in sequence. So not all 20 cars are shut off, but like you can't have 20 cars charging at the same time in the same circuit. And so they sort of either they... Uh, take everyone's draw down to three kilowatts or they just, you know, have the ones that have the lowest state of charge get the full, you know, 11 kilowatts worth of, you know, draw. And then the ones that are close to fully charged go down to one kilowatt. There's lots of ways to do this, right? But, and the technology is being provided, right? You have Wallbox that recently provided a big announcement of manufacturing in Texas and others. And so, so I think it's there, but but I, I I think that the utilities really worry that if they own assets in the customer's premises, then they will be regulated as such, and they'll have to take full responsibility for a lot of things. And so most utilities are choosing to let third parties do the aggregation and for them to just have a service level agreement with those third parties. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. No, it's a crossing the chasm moment for sure. And, you know, in California, you, I don't know if you've been tracking the clean energy financing proceeding, which is, you know, really intended to get at this issue. Um, and I, I know you're talking with some of the IOUs in California about leveraging loan program dollars for this, but, you know, this idea that, you know, that a, a customer or a third party could could own a behind a meter asset, but that that asset could be capitalized by the utility and the savings from that asset could be used to, to uh, basically inform a tariff where the asset is paid back over time uh, on the utilities customer bill. And that's kind of a financial jujitsu. Um, it's nothing new. It's kind of like what you sort of did originally with Sun Edison. It's energy as a service, but through a utility. So, you know, it, that may be kind of a, a workaround way to a utility actually not physically owning the asset, but having visibility to it and, um, you know, enabling the financing of it uh, to accomplish sort of a similar outcome. Yeah, I think that's right. And it also goes to your first question about this is really expensive, right? I mean, part of this is expanding the the definition of this, right? I mean, right now, this is rate-based uh, investments by utilities. But we know that um, American families buy um, billions of dollars of backup generators Right, that's outside of the system. Like, why would they pay that money if the system was providing all the services? Would they pay the system for those services and the extra payments required there if if offered those services? But the same thing's true with appliances and household appliances. I mean, today heat pump water heaters and 
thermostats and refrigerators are all versions of thermal storage, right? And so the question becomes, right? I mean, do you want to pay for Tesla Megapacks or do you want to pay 90% less money for thermal storage, right? And allowing people's refrigerators and water heaters and HVAC units, right? Depending on how energy efficient their home is to, um, to serve the same service, right? And what would you pay them for that service, right? And, and the other thing that I think we all recognize but are having a hard time articulating is that poor people today pay 30% interest for those services, right? Because when something breaks, they're very concerned of $75 worth of food in their refrigerator going bad. So they go out and buy the first refrigerator they can get. It's usually $200 more expensive than they have any right of paying. And it's a 12% interest. When you combine those two together, that's 30% interest. So why wouldn't you want to use a utility on bill financing mechanism or uh, an unsecured loan, right, from the solar financial uh, technology platforms to intervene at that moment and say, no, we'll get you the cheapest refrigerator at a very good price that's very energy efficient, and we'll stick it in there. And instead of financing it over only two years, we'll finance it over 10 years, right, to lower the payments even more. And we'll pay you extra if you subscribe it into a DER or DERMS platform, right? It's, but this is all consumer money that would be brought into the system to reduce the cost of electricity for everybody. That's right, that's right. No, I, I love that vision. And you know, when, when you and I first started talking about this you know, a while back, you know, we've gone around and around on public purpose programs and, and the cost shift that they create. And I, I know we kind of share a common view around that, um, but I, I, I really like this idea of, of outside capital to fund some of these programs because it really does need to be sort of off the backs of of customers and that cost shift that we've talked about you know needs to be mitigated and the idea of using third party capital to do things that would benefit all customers um, i think is really um where we need to go um, i know it's um i know it's potentially difficult to do but i think that's what in california they're thinking about leveraging a certain amount of utility equity with outside debt capital, so that blended cost of capital to a to a customer um, is far far lower than it would have been otherwise, and and that's the the money that's used to sort of fund those, some of those investments. So um, I'm happy to hear that a lot of these things are being seriously considered and, and operationalized in California to start with. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, and and the better part of it is that on bill financing. Um, for people that are sub 670 FICO score um, has, you know, uh, one fifth the level of defaults as unsecured financing does, right? Unsecured financing has roughly 15%, you know, risk of default and on-bill financing is down at 3%, right? So as a result, you can provide much lower interest rates because you have less anticipated uh, defaults. But I think the one other thing I'd say just to reinforce the previous point is that um, is that, you know, when you have a diesel generator or a natural gas generator in your backyard, you can imagine the utility not wanting to run that diesel generator or natural gas generator regularly, particularly with air quality standards and and, you know, frankly, just the cost, right? The cost of the natural gas feeding that natural gas generator is retail. And so it's not really that cost effective. But when you have a Ford F-150 Lightning, and it has a 125 kilowatt hour pack 
that can run your house for seven to 14 days. Right. I mean, depending on whether you have it wired for only emergency loads or for all loads. Um, and and so when you think about just the sheer size of that battery and the sheer size of the relative size of it to your your home's load. And for many people, they feature two pickup trucks in their family. Right. And so now you've got 250 kilowatt hours worth of battery there. Um, I just think that, you know, we are just not comprehending how large a shift is coming, I mean, just through people's vehicle batteries. Yeah, yeah. I completely agree. And and you, you think about, we have this definition of the grid um, that I think is, well, it's a little old school. And I think if you think about how distributed it's going to become and how customers are gonna be sort of partners in that co-creation, and it's a whole new way of thinking about about how the grid could be managed and how customers are part of that sort of co-creation, which I think is you know, pretty exciting that the key will be figuring out how to do it equitably and it needs to happen faster is, is the challenge. Um, does David have a question? I do have a question, yeah. I, and I wanna take it a little, a little back from the, the the forward thinking and more towards just straight old energy efficiency. And so, you know, I know one of the potential uses of the Title 17 funding through LPO is for energy efficiency projects. Um, I don't believe there have been any approved projects yet. I don't know if any have been submitted, but Jigger, I'm, I'm kind of curious. like. What would you like to see from utilities submitted to you? What kind of projects, what kind of energy efficiency projects would would really get you excited to, to come across your desk? No, it's a great question. And I think it's it it goes to the same conversation we've been having, which is around looking at the entire system as opposed to these individual programs. You know, the, the federal government just uh, put out, I think, $3.2 billion of weatherization money through the state energy offices, which you know was something that was done um, under the Obama administration under era stimulus as well, this sort of plus up of money. But when you think about how many homes um, qualify for weatherization, I think I think the entire Obama administration uh, program was about a million homes that was done under that plus up of money, and the average DOE budget does about. 35,000 homes per year, maybe. And so, but the total number of homes that qualify for energy efficiency, uh, weatherization money is something on the order of like 15 to 20 million homes in this country. It's not a small number. We're not on track to weatherizing all those homes, right? On top of that, we have low income housing energy assistant payment programs that we provide. You separately have the electric utilities writing off, um, you know, like a certain amount of uh, uh, the collections that they have for people who don't pay their bills. So when you take all of that money together as a system and you think through, you know, what could you do with energy efficiency if you thought about it in a systemic way across the entire utility territory? I think that the level of cost reduction and the level of integration into reduced capex 
for um, distribution circuit upgrades is pretty profound, right? And so you're basically saying instead of spending a billion dollars to upgrade this distribution substation or this distribution line, why don't we spend that same billion dollars in coordination with LAHEAP and in coordination with weatherization and with utility on-bill financing mechanisms to actually reduce all of this energy consumption in people's homes to reduce their energy burden. But I think when you think about the way in which the utility monopoly license is created and shareholder reimbursement is, is calculated, et cetera, I just don't think people think about it. The opportunity to braid those different funding streams along with monetizing the benefits that come along with it and as you said financing it it really is a, a true win-win-win scenario and it would be exciting to see some projects i think that that could accomplish that yeah even if you did it on one product right think about certain communities where you literally just have a million room air conditioners window room air conditioners right and we have a number of grants that we've given out of the department of energy for innovation in that space so now you've got products coming out where you can turn those into heat pumps and so if the utility just said we're giving you guys all of these heat pumps and we're gonna we're gonna control them right um uh you know and 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 that kind of thing i mean i just think that it would just be shocking how much lower people's energy bills would be and how much more grid flexibility the utilities would own. And yeah. it would, I think, just send shockwaves around how many additional tools the grid operators would have to handle all of the complexity that Patty was talking about that's due to weather, um, you know, weirdness and, and climate change. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, getting back to that structural change jigger, I feel like that point that you just described is 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 one of the sticky points because I feel like there's an opportunity for efficient infrastructure spending, um, um, and then basically looking at you know how do these assets perform on the grid and how can grid operators actually trust those assets are going to show up, you know what are the sort of market signals or commercial terms that are needed to actually you know, engage those assets in a way that will keep the lights on because, you know, as the operator and the load serving entity, that's ultimately what they've got to do. So it's it's that sort of combination. I'm, I'm envisioning a Venn diagram where, you know, there's co common interest between both sides that the assets are engaged and they're they're being used, but the grid operator can see them and have visibility to them and trust that they'll show up. That's that's we're going to have to turn that corner, you know, sooner than later. I love it. I just keep hearing focus and scale, scale, scale. I just keep, you know, that seems to be a very, uh, <laughs> very prominent theme in the discussion. And I can't believe it, but we are already getting close to wrapping things up. So this is when I always like to ask, um, and I'm going to tee it up to both of you. If you could change one thing in the industry, no limits, what would you change? You know, honestly, I've been in this industry for a very long time. And the thing that I want to change the most is to elevate local voices. You know, I think that when you think about our our country, we have 19,500 cities and towns in this country. Only 1,800 of them 
have populations above 35,000, right? 2,000 of them actually, you know, own their own utility or have utility control, right? And when you think about how little progress has been made on energy burden and empowerment through those entities with all of that local uh, nexus, right? I mean, it really does seem like um, we have not really allowed uh, local uh, voices to really have a very um, prominent role in this conversation. And I do think it matters because we, we have huge amounts of money, right? Loan programs office is 43 billion plus dollars. Um, you know, trillions of dollars have been announced by JP Morgan and Goldman and lots of other people. And we have a huge amount of technology, right? But, you know, I think that when you think about the quote that I saw the other day from, um, uh, from um, uh, Derek Thompson in The Atlantic was, invention is easily overrated and implementation is often under underrated. Mm. Um, it's just something that we have got to figure out how to do better. Yeah, yeah, I like that quote. And, you know, my sort of big thing um, is sort of similar. It's related to the need to, to partner more utilities and, and local communities and DER providers. You know, I think there's a huge opportunity to partner more, to achieve more. That would be my one big thing is how do we get more alignment between some of the interests? I think there's a lot more mutual interests out there than, than people realize and trying to operationalize um, the, the policy goals that utilities and communities have all agreed to. You know, we see a lot of top-down policy goals on decarbonization and by 2040, 2050. But to Jigger's point, those goals are, aren't being sort of operationalized in, in real life and in a time-bound way. And I think that's the opportunity to really partner and bring everybody into that tent and agree that, look, we've got a lot of work to do. We all need to work together and, and pull on every single resource we have available to us to, to make that happen. Really great. Thank you both. This just takes me back to what I always say is that we are all energy users, right? Like we like we talk about this as if it's some abstract thing, but in our everyday lives, we're all just the same, right? We're just we're just using energy like everybody else and trying to do it in a way that leads to a clean energy future. So anyway, thank you so much. This has been just fascinating, wonderful discussion, especially between the two of you. Really appreciate it. Yep. Thank you, Joan. Thank you, David. And Jigger, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to hear your uh, your insight, and I'm always inspired. Absolutely. Well, I just honestly, the the groundbreaking work you've done since the Inner City Funds and the Energy Star program, and all the things that all of you have pioneered, um, has gotten us here, and we have a lot more work to do. So, really appreciate your partnership. Thank you. You do. Thank you again, and we just we really hate hate to wrap it up, but for the rest of you listening, if you've enjoyed listening to today's podcast, Energy and 30, don't worry, there's more. You can look to July for our next episode where we'll be talking to the founders of Cambo Energy Group, Yasmin and Kareem, regarding a holistic approach of addressing climate, weatherization, and capacity needs through housing programs in tribal nations. Um. Really looking forward to that one, Joan. And I have to say, I'm really thrilled to hear a lot of the optimism that we keep hearing from our guests. And I'm excited to 
to hear more as we keep having these awesome conversations with with experts in our field. I couldn't agree more, David. Thanks all. And don't forget to subscribe, share, rate the show and review our podcast. We really appreciate you doing that. And here's to our next Energy in 30.